What's going on, everybody? My name is Travis Smith, and welcome to the very first episode of NOLA Reservations, a conversation on rebuilding that dives into how we, as members of the entrepreneurial ecosystem in New Orleans, can help remove pre-existing and newly found barriers to success, specifically for minority founders in a post-pandemic environment. For my first episode, I sat down with Anne Marshall Tilton from the LePage Center at Tulane University over a Zoom webinar attended by multiple entrepreneurs within New Orleans, as well as several Venture for America fellows like myself. We took a deep dive into the Greater New Orleans Startup Report that came out toward the latter half of 2020. We investigated some of the findings, as well as chatted about how we could have a positive impact on the Greater New Orleans entrepreneurial ecosystem during this time. Let's get it started. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Take Back the Block, Conversations on Rebuilding. I'm your host, Travis Smith, and I am super, super excited to be having the very first installment of this monthly podcast with everybody. Thank you to everyone who's logging on, and I know we're going to get a lot more people joining in shortly. But just to get us started, I wanted to take a brief moment to introduce myself. I am a New Orleans fellow with Venture for America in the 2019 class. I am an associate at Catalyst Ed. I am originally from New Jersey. This is my first podcast, and I am super duper excited. With me today, I have Anne Marshall Tilton, who is so well accomplished and filled with so many different <laughs> accolades that there's absolutely no way I could do any justice to them. So Anne, I'll turn it over to you for you to introduce yourself. It's really awesome having you here. Well, thanks, Travis. I don't know about all that, but um, <laughs> <laughs> my name is Anne Marshall. Um, it's a double name like Mary Beth, and I am the Community Engagement Manager at the LePage Center for Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Tulane. That is a part of the Freeman School of Business at Tulane, and we do a lot of things at the LePage Center. My specific role has more to do with community outreach, and specifically, my biggest project is what we're discussing tonight. It's called the Greater New Orleans Startup Report. Absolutely. Thanks so much for that, Anne. And yeah, we, we definitely have a lot of really, really engaging questions. I'm, I'm excited to get involved in the conversation. Just so everybody else has a layout for how the conversation is going to go. I have some questions queued up for Anne, although we really intend for this to be very conversational and fluid and authentic and natural and all those things. So we'll be talking through a couple of really important findings that came up out of the 2020 GNO startup report. And we will also have an opportunity for Q&A at the end of our conversation. Feel free to engage in the chat box and uh, we will go through questions and answers a little closer toward the end. That being said, Anne, ready to get started? Yeah. All right, let's do it. So I think a really important place to begin is in talking about putting together the startup report this year, it was very clear that your team wanted to be more intentional about 
the findings being a little more reflective of the demographic in New Orleans, specifically because in the pilot report, which happened last year, it didn't seem to be the most reflective of Black-owned companies and Black-owned startups. So could you talk a little bit more about anything specific that went into the motivation to make this year's a lot more equally representative of New Orleans population and specifically their entrepreneurial ecosystem? Definitely. So let me give just a little bit of background on where the data in the report comes from. So what we do is every year we survey, and so we've only done it two years, but we envision this as a multi-year project. So every year we're going to survey local entrepreneurs. We're not paying these entrepreneurs. They're literally donating their time. And, and the survey takes a long time to complete, sometimes like 15 to 20 minutes, depending on how you answer certain questions. We were essentially in the first year just relying on our own networks. We did have some good partners that helped us get the the survey out there. But what came back to us was, I think, more reflective of Tulane's network of entrepreneurs than mm. what I would say would be the real landscape in New Orleans. So we had a lot of white male college graduates. You know, the goal of this project is ultimately not to showcase what entrepreneurship looks like around Tulane. Mm. It's to showcase what entrepreneurship looks like in New Orleans so that we can affect policy and we can help some organizations like the New Orleans Business Alliance, for example, apply for grants and get the funding that they might need to then better serve the entrepreneurs in the community. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's a, a really nice segue into, um, since you were talking a little bit more about how the information was collected with intentionality, something else that came up early on in the backstory of the report was how it was very intentional that, you know, this year is very specific considering that we had a, what, seven to eight month long and counting pandemic that we are still finding ourselves out of. I know that there were a lot of opinions about whether or not some of the findings and some of the information collected should still come to light because it was assumed that everybody's intentions from whom you collected the data from, they all had a different idea as to what their plans were and about what the future would look like pre-COVID-19. Because I believe this information was collected early in 2020, right? Definitely before March. Yeah, yeah. It was collected before Mardi Gras. So that was, for those of you who are new to New Orleans, that was January and the first half of February. And with that being said, so a lot of the information collected does not exactly reflect what our founders' initial ideals were and what their initial goals were and missions were before the pandemic. So in the collection of this data, how have you found that COVID-19 has impacted the preparation of the 2020 report, as well as some of the findings that we're going to be getting into a little bit later? Yeah, that's a great question. So I'll say that over the summer, we definitely considered and almost decided not to publish a 2020 report and just to look ahead to 2021, sort of using our 2020 data that we collected as pre-pandemic benchmark mm. and then showing sort of how things have changed in the wake, well, 
I guess I don't think that by the time we collect data, this will be over, but, um, you know, (laughs) as we're in the midst of the pandemic, kind of showing Mm -hmm. how things have evolved, I still think we're going to do that in 2021. But the reason that we decided to still go ahead and publish it is because, well, there are a couple of reasons, but I'd say like the primary reason was that thanks to some amazing new partnerships that we built, particularly the New Orleans Business Alliance and the Mm. New Orleans Regional Black Chamber, we were able to get what I would say is as close as maybe we know to um, a representative sample of Black-owned businesses this year. And so we took a look at that and what we found wasn't necessarily surprising to the people who've been doing this type of work for years, but it was pretty stark. You know, I think we felt like we needed to publish it because it was the most recent data that we had about this issue. And I I actually have a couple charts that I can throw up here if if y'all want to see the data. That was a perfect segue. I was just about to ask if you could start getting into some of of the optimistic findings that have come out of the report. So for the first episode of this podcast, Ann Marshall and I hopped on a Zoom webinar and we invited several young entrepreneurs and Venture for America fellows to join us as we dug into the data and findings of the GNO Startup Report. So what's happening at this part of the podcast is Ann Marshall is sharing her screen, which has all of the different data that is presented in the Startup Report. And she goes a little bit deeper into some of those findings that we continue to discuss later on in the podcast. For me, these three charts are pretty optimistic. Keep in mind, this is pre-COVID. So Mm -hmm. I think that these numbers are a little bit lower now, but it's pretty good that 86% of the companies in our data set we're planning to hire in 2020, hire full-time employees. And then 87% were also planning to hire some part-time or contract workers. Yeah. A lot of plans for growth, it looks like. Yeah. So I think I'm still optimistic and I guess we'll see what happens when we collect data in 2021, but I'm still optimistic that some of these companies will continue hiring. I think there was maybe a little bit of a pause over the summer. Mm -hmm. So that was one optimistic finding. I'd say the other one, let me see if I can find this chart. I like this chart too, this question about will your company continue to be located in greater New Orleans? I love the people who say definitely yes, 69%. And then we have probably yes, 20%. So most people are planning to stay here. I think that unfortunately, there can be a lot of reasons not to stay here for companies, whether that's, you know, a talent pool issue, whether you need access to investors or other types of funding, or even just infrastructure issues. And I'm encouraged to see people planning to stay. Now that you have this piece of data around being located in New Orleans, I know that there was another part of the data that was talking about how there are a lot of companies and organizations in which the funding that they find actually comes from places outside of New Orleans. And that they were in some of the some of the comments toward the end, um, they were also talking about either moving or switching entirely to remote, which essentially decentralizes the location of where companies are going to 
to continue operating. I wanted to get your insight on the type of support that, say, New Orleans funders or New Orleans investors provide to actual New Orleans startups and, and New Orleans companies. Would you say that in the investment world and in the entrepreneurship world that there is a high element of support for those types of organizations that are homegrown here? Yeah, I would say that overall we have a really, really supportive investment community. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that can be a challenge and why you sometimes see companies ending up moving to another location is that a lot of times, so when when you're going to an investor as a startup founder, you're not just looking for money. You're also looking for expertise or a network. Um, right. You're looking for someone who can say, I'm going to find you the best CFO there is. Right. Or, Maybe even people to join the board of directors. Yes. So I think that where the New Orleans investment community can be lacking is in that arena, you know, even if they're able to provide capital, they might not know as much about the industry. So I know Mm. one example of a lot of times biotech companies are sort of lured by investors to go up to the Boston area. And that because that's where they can find, you know, these experienced staff members, that's where they can find other investors who might want to support their idea. So that's kind of where that comes from. I think that that we're on a good track though of beginning to sort of turn that around. I know there's a lot of local firms looking to do some investing in startups. And the more we do that, the more expertise we'll be building, particularly the Benson Capital Partners that was just announced. I think that's that's a really good sign. Nice. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I could go on and on about different questions about different findings, but I I think that now that we have an idea about some things that were really optimistic at the start of the year, could you point us to a couple of areas that might be a little concerning and furthermore, how those same sort of areas may have been impacted in the midst of the pandemic? So I'm I'm going to talk first about one of the things that we did do while this data was all collected pre-COVID, we did in June, we did a qualitative kind of follow-up survey. Right. So if you read the report, which if y'all, if y'all want to look at this report, you can download it at genostartupreport.com. We did do a qualitative survey where we asked some folks who had responded to our earlier survey, how has COVID changed things for you? And we got a lot of anecdotal responses back, which you can actually see in the report. The report That's yeah. why I was, I was telling people if you want to download it. We saw some people being optimistic, but we did see a lot of people sort of saying, you know, I had to lay off half my staff. Yeah. We lost our biggest client. Yeah. Lots of big hits. Yeah. There was one entrepreneur who said, I am my business. And so what happens if I get COVID? You know, mm, if I'm out right. for two weeks because and I'm that, sick. Yeah. then the business is done, you know, and that, that was sort of a, a tough thing to read because it's just hard to see somebody not having support. Yeah. So that I'd say like around COVID, those were some of the less optimistic findings. I will share some of our findings around racial equity. Yeah, that would be wonderful. These are the slides that we used in our recent panel discussion. um, Uh, Yes, on Thursday. Last week. Yeah, Yeah. so, and I can drop a YouTube video of that discussion if anyone wants to watch it in the chat. That'd be awesome. And we used BIPOC because this is not only Black founders. This is a little bit- 
color, yeah. indigenous peoples. We saw here that BIPOC founders are half as likely to receive bank loans and actually less than half as likely to receive angel investment. So only 8% of BIPOC wow. founders made revenue over a million compared to 28% of white founders in the data set. This is sort of the reverse. So you obviously want to have a high profit margin, not a low yeah, one. <laughs> so this is showing that 23% of BIPOC founders have this higher, I mean, have this low profit margin of less than 10% compared to only 8% of white founders. Now, these are yeah. definitely um, evident, like they're evident that there is some sort of disparity going on within entrepreneurship. I'm, I mean, I have a lot of key takeaway questions, but before I take a dive into any of those, I'm curious as to what you think might have contributed, once again, since this is preceding the pandemic, I'm curious on your thoughts as to what may have contributed to some of these desperate, um, disparate, excuse me, some of these disparate findings. Well, I would definitely encourage everyone to listen to our panel discussion from mm -hmm. last Thursday because I think that was discussed a Famous lot. Plug. And I I think what I'll do now is just kind of parrot some of that. There was some discussion of the racial wealth gap, sort of the concept that white founders may have more wealth to guarantee a loan or they may be able to turn to friends and family and say, hey, can I have a million dollars to start my business? Whereas BIPOC founders are while their friends and family are no less generous, they may be asking their friends and family for their child's college tuition or yeah. something that's a lot less easy to give up. I think that is probably one of the bigger things. Another thing that was discussed on Thursday was traditional lending practices tend to favor people with more generational wealth or sort of traditional best indicators like previous success yeah. in a company. So that was that's another one. In terms of angel investment, I think it's interesting because mm. angel mm. investment is just as bad when you look at women. Mm. And I think there it's also a networking issue. It's an issue of getting in the room with the people who Yeah, like rubbing those elbows piece of it too. But I don't want to speak too much to this just because if you watch that panel discussion, it's a really, really great discussion that dives into kind of like Absolutely. the why of a lot of this. Absolutely. You all heard it here first. Make sure that as soon as you are done listening to this podcast <laughs> that you go ahead and check out that uh, live equity panel. Uh, I watched the discussion myself. It was absolutely very enriching and informative. So 10 out of 10 would recommend to you and everyone you know. Moving forward in that regard, I think that it's really important for us to, as young and aspiring entrepreneurs who are ideally the, the people who I'm hoping are listening to this podcast, I think that there are a lot of things for us to think about kind of coming into this new year. I wanted to start by asking your opinions as far as what you would say are the priorities that some of these founders that are a part of the support ought to focus a bit more on now. I mean, we saw that at one point there were a lot of founders and there were a lot of business owners that planned on growing in a multitude of capacities and interns, part-time and full-time work. Do you think that now they ought to 
with a bunch of furloughs that have happened, do you think that they ought to focus on hiring more staff and trying to continue their plans of expansion? Do you think that they need to focus on client retention since we were talking about how a lot of places lost their clients? Do you think they should focus on getting more funding? Where do you think the priorities should shift now that we have experienced what we've experienced and know what we know? It's going to depend a lot on the individual business. You know, all the things that you just listed are a vicious cycle. And I'll just, I'll kind of tell a story from a software founder that I was speaking with uh, recently. His software is fairly recession proof. It's in an industry that hasn't particularly suffered from the pandemic. However, just because of the general economic uncertainty and investors getting skittish, he decided to pause on his fund fundraising round. And that kind of had ripple effects all around his business. So he paused on his fundraising round. He then wasn't able to hire an employee, a key employee that he really needed to hire to move the business forward. Then he was stuck doing the job of that employee and he wasn't able to sort of step back and work on his business. He was working in his business. Mm-hmm. And so that decision to not raise around did ultimately affect the operations of the business. And I'm not necessarily saying that was the wrong decision that he made, but I think all these things are so interconnected that it's hard to say like, this is where you start. For some companies, it's going to be a challenge because in order to serve increasing demand, they're going to have to hire more people. But in order to hire more people, they might need the revenues from that demand that isn't quite there yet or hasn't hit yet. So that's then where lending comes in, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. they may need some cash. So, (laughs) so That's maybe a little bit of a non-answer, but it depends on the situation. I mean, for sure, to kind of piggyback off of that, I think it also has a lot to do with what stage the company is in. I think that a lot of momentum for startups happens within, you know, that first five-year chunk, particularly because it is typically at that point where you can evaluate whether or not there is still growth trajectory for a company or not, particularly in startup land. We learned at one point that about, I want to say 90% of startups fail within the first five years or they go under. And so if you can make it past that point, then you've already beat the numbers. So I I think it is really important to consider at what stage each of these organizations are in, because that will really impact our contribution. To speak to that, I want to quote one of the participants in the GNO report. They said, and I quote, the greater New Orleans area is a beautiful montage. diversity of personnel, businesses, and customer sets is always adapting and changing to positive and negative events brought on by sources outside of their control. This drives innovation and builds strength within those that have it while creating openings for growth where others cannot change at the times. If anybody's curious where I found that, that's on page 21 of the startup report. So I myself am somebody very new to New Orleans. I got here about two months ago. And even being here in this short amount of time, it is very clear that New Orleans is a resilient location, if nothing else. And they have seen their fair share of highs and lows and everything in between. So as far as this call to action, as far as what we have to do now to rebuild our block, as this conversation is named after, who are the people that need to act? Are they the elected officials? Are there investors looking to do some business in New Orleans? Are they current New Orleanians who are looking to transition from traditional small business to scaling organizations? Who are the people that need to act right now? 
Um, that's a great question. I think that there's a place for external investors who are interested in investing here. You know, as we see in the startup report, there's a lot of great companies seeking investment, mm-hmm. particularly in the healthcare, food and beverage, software spaces. I do think that New Orleans has a really unique and exciting food and beverage scene that can be sort of like a new area for some investors to look into. I also think though that to investors, I would say like, don't be afraid of the quote unquote boring companies. Mm -hmm. So like the logistics companies, the infrastructure companies, we have a lot of great companies in those areas that are looking to scale quickly. And that would be a really interesting space, especially if you're interested in investing in black owned businesses. Mm. We have a lot of great companies, both in food and beverage and in the sort of like infrastructure and logistics spaces. Yeah. And and honestly, that was actually a really good segue into um, another one of my questions, similar to asking more about that call to action. But instead of framing it around supporting entrepreneurs specifically and just anybody who's a business owner, how can we uplift and support particularly the minority-owned businesses, the BIPOC founders? What are our contributions as young entrepreneurs or recent college grads who are just coming to New Orleans and other cities? You know, we want to be intentional about giving more to the cities than what we take. And so I think that now is, a. <laughs> I think it's probably the perfect opportunity for us to really put our money where our mouths are, whether that be metaphorically or literally. So how can we fight this inequity? What are some very tangible actions and what are some things that we can get involved in or how might we be able to educate ourselves so that way we are continuing to give to a location that has so much to give? That's a really great question. I think y'all are on the right track just by being here today and um, being part of Venture for America New Orleans. Working for a local startup is I would say one of the very best things you can do for the city. Um, Definitely. It's great for your own career, but it also allows you to really make a contribution to a company that has the potential to grow and hire more and more people and create good, stable jobs for the region. I think that's something that we really need. Yeah. I would say generally appreciating the history, culture, and food of the city, getting out there and learning about the city. I know it's kind of hard in COVID days, but to the extent <laughs> that you can. <laughs> I mean, New Orleans is opening up real slow like, so we'll we'll see. <laughs> Hopefully we can keep these numbers down. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But in, in terms of local organizations to get involved in, if you're interested in economic development, the New Orleans Business Alliance does some really good economic development programs for young professionals or they have in the past. Yeah. I'm not sure what shape that's taking during COVID. Yeah. But the YLC, the Young Leadership Council also does some similar things. I would encourage you to just get out there and get on Zoom and attend yeah. like <laughs> Idea Village community events or Idea Village. Yeah, or things <laughs> like our this panel that we just hosted. Definitely. Also check out what's going on at Propeller and Fund 17. Those are great organizations as well. Awesome. And I'm 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 sure they all appreciate the plug. So make sure you all uh, who are watching and who are listening be sure to check out 
all of those organizations. I also, I wanted to return back to um, one of the takeaways. I think you may have mentioned it just very, very briefly. I understand that in New Orleans, a big part of what brings in money or cash flow to the city are different gigs, since this is a gig economy, as well as tourism. So naturally, tourism has been on quite a halt since the pandemic has started. So I'm curious if you have seen, how have you seen the impact that COVID-19 has had on businesses in that respect? Because I'm sure that the impact on those specific types of businesses definitely have an overall influence on the entrepreneurial economy in New Orleans, but specifically maybe in some of the findings of the GNO report. I think hospitality was our third most common industry in the report. I want to say it was 12% of the companies in the report were were in the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. And that is a large percentage. I think in reality, the number of businesses in this area that are touched by the hospitality industry are probably higher. Yeah. So I think as it relates to the findings from the report, I would say that it's probably not good in terms of like (laughs) people who are planning to hire, following through with those plans. You know, if you're a hospitality company and COVID-19 hits and you're planning to hire a bunch of people, Mm. chances are you did not follow through with that. Uh, You weren't able to. I would say that's probably one of the unfortunate things. Yeah, it's definitely another layer. But I think in general, this economy is heavily reliant on hospitality and tourism. So even those businesses that aren't directly in that industry are going to be affected, especially if they're relying on local consumers. It's just those consumers might be employed in the hospitality industry themselves. So now they're out of the job. So they're not able to buy products that are made by the other entrepreneurs. So it's just having this ripple effect in the same way that Katrina did, unfortunately, or even like the BP oil spill. Yeah. And speaking of Katrina, in my research, I found that there have been a lot of culture-based economic drivers emerge in New Orleans following the devastation that was Hurricane Katrina. I'm curious if you have any insights about whether or not you feel like a new culture-based or a new a new cohort, if you will, of culture-based economic drivers could emerge from the pandemic, similarly to how we've seen from the CID after Hurricane Katrina. In terms of like a large cultural organization, I can't really speak to that. But but one thing that I'll, one thing that I will mention, and this has nothing to do with the report. It's honestly just something I've seen and that has interested me Mm -hmm. is just this proliferation of Mm. cottage industries and purveyors. So a lot of hospitality industry folks, you know, if they're out of the job, instead of waiting tables or instead of cooking in a restaurant kitchen, Mm -hmm. they are making food at home. They're baking or they're making ice cream or making frozen cocktail. Real real good work. (laughs) Selling stuff on Instagram or or getting it out there in another way. There are chefs that are hosting private dinners in their backyards. Right. So, and they're not, you know, necessarily legal, but it's a whole new industry that I think is maybe going to be the precursor to the next wave of really interesting hospitality innovation that we see. Definitely. And I mean, I'm eager. I think that this conversation is so timely, especially with an election happening in seven days. And 
when we find out what those results are, I think that is also going to have quite an impact on what we do next, on what founders and what certain business owners are going to have to prioritize and where they'll have to move. Not to get too political here, but I definitely see there being some sort of shift for better or for worse coming out of the election that's coming up. Do you have any insight as to what sort of impact we can start seeing? Do you have any idea about if in either outcome, if it will empower our startup leaders to be even more driven now that they have an opportunity going into a new year, they can actually start to get back on their feet. Do you see any sort of influence of the election in one way or another having an impact on what that will look like? It's kind of hard for me to say. I think that in terms of just like the general mood and people's confidence and outlook, it it may have an effect. I would say though that local officials are probably more important when it comes to thinking about what's happening here. Like I know there's state regulations and things. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we hear a lot from food and beverage people, especially distillers and alcohol people is that Louisiana actually has some really difficult alcohol regulations. Mm -hmm. I know that there's some issues with manufacturing capacity. So (laughs) Andrew. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. You know, he would, I'm sure he'd have a lot to say. (laughs) Yeah. So I would say that, you know, what would make a bigger impact for local businesses probably is some legislation at the state level to make some of that a little bit easier on entrepreneurs. Definitely. And I I can't, I guess I'm not as knowledgeable about in that area. So I don't want to say too much. For sure. Yeah. Appreciate any guidance that you have to offer, especially given your position and how you're observing all of this, which is a completely different perspective than what I'm having. So I really, really appreciate that insight. I could continue to bog you down with a million and one questions that I have prepared, but I also know that we have a lot of excited participants that might have some questions for you. So for all of you who are currently watching live, in case you weren't aware before, the Q&A chat box is open. See that we already got some activity in there. I'll go ahead and kind of lean on one of these. Joel Hockman, shout out Joel. He wants to know, how will we know when New Orleans has made it? Oh, man, that is like the million dollar question. Joel. <laughs> Absolutely. Great, great question. Joel. <laughs> you know, I think that there's always going to be a tension, right? Because there are those that want New Orleans to be the next Silicon Valley, and they want New Orleans to just have a proliferation of high-tech companies, have people from all over the world start moving here, have real estate prices go up, have salaries go up. Mm. And then there are those that say, no, but wait, New Orleans is special, and we don't want it to be infiltrated by tech bros or whatever terminology you want to use. So so I'm going to answer this question in a little bit of a weird way. (laughs) To me, I think making it for New Orleans would mean striking a balance there. So it would mean finding a way to attract businesses and talent and make it so that people here have jobs that pay well. And we have public schools that (laughs) are actually functional and people want to send their kids there. Yeah. And while at the same time having New Orleans retain some of what makes it special culturally um, in terms of food and music and architecture. So I know that's a hard balance to strike, but I think that what that comes down to is having our first founders that quote unquote make it 
it, yeah. being really bought into New Orleans and, and understanding why this place is special and wanting to preserve that. Hiring employees that feel the same way. Mm-hmm. I also think that it has a lot to do with being intentional around racial diversity. This city is a majority minority city. Yep. And so we want to support entrepreneurs of color. Like I would like to see our first unicorn be a black founder. Absolutely. Hires a really diverse team and continues to just build up the city in that way. You touched on something really special, which is that New Orleans is special. And I mean, we could go on and on about the French Quarter and about the amazing food and all sorts of things. But I think that there is definitely something very particular about New Orleans that distinguishes themselves as a city in comparison to the Silicon Valley or in New York City. With that being said, when you think about how New Orleans is going to react and how we're we're going to bounce back and what that special sauce is that is going to make New Orleans okay, how do you think that that special sauce and how do you think that our response is going to fare compared to a lot of these tech companies that have taken huge hits in the beginning but are potentially bouncing back now that we're moving to a more virtual environment? How do you think that will fare in this evaluation of post-pandemic response compared to the typical startup atropolises, if you will? So I think that New Orleans is going to have to really embrace new things Mm. in order to survive this, which in some ways the city is really great at that and did an amazing job with that after Katrina. You know, thinking back to like those cottage industries that I was talking about, leaning into the crisis and figuring out a way to make the best of it and come into something innovative. Yeah. I was going to ask if you could go a little more into what you meant by how New Orleans is going to have to lean into these newer things. Could you talk a little more about that? Sure. Yeah. I think, you know, rethinking hospitality a little bit. I would love to see New Orleans be the epicenter for some innovative concepts around hospitality, whether that's, you know, if I had a great idea, maybe I'd go start a company, but, um, (laughs) you know, I I think, I think like one of the things that I've seen that has become such a huge hit are the Commander's Palace wine and cheese night. They're virtual and it's become sort of like this national phenomenon now and people are tuning in from all over the country. Yeah. So just thinking through different ways to do what we've always done. Yeah. But in a different way. Right, right. It'll have to be new, just the same way that everything else is changing. Nothing else is going to be the same. So New Orleans is going to have to follow suit one way or another. Another question that we have from Jamie Shear, who is a Tulane alum. She says, do you think there is an effective way to connect Tulane students who come through the LePage Center to the issues we've chatted about today? As a former Tulane student, it seems that students aren't necessarily focused on slash are aware of the local environment, specifically having startups and talents stay in New Orleans or supporting local businesses run by Black, Indigenous, or people of color. Yes. So I think you're right. That's a big goal of the LePage Center. One of the things that we did over the summer and that I think we want to continue doing. So we did a program called the Strategic Advisors Program over the summer where we placed 
Tulane students with local businesses, maybe 50% of the businesses were founded by people of color. So yeah, so it was a great program and it was a really good way for Tulane students to get out there and meet some of these founders and learn a little bit more about what's going on in the city. Absent that program, I would say if you're interested, any Tulane student who's interested in being connected with a local startup can always come to the LePage Center or they can go to a career center and you know, they can help connect um, that student with us. But I also think that if you're really interested in it at this point, educating yourself and getting out into the community and yeah. talking to entrepreneurs as much as possible, that'll help you learn about the opportunities. Our dearest Andrew Albert, he was curious if you all are working with other cities, potentially BFA cities on similar reports. If so, could you identify a couple of similarities or differences that there are in comparable cities? Yeah. So actually, when we set out to do this, we looked um, for other cities that were doing something like this. It was originally supposed to be an index, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. And we weren't able to find any that were really doing anything on the scale. That said, we have had conversations. I'm actually talking to someone from Tampa tomorrow. Um, I I don't know if that's a VFA city or not. And then we also had conversations with some folks in Birmingham about doing something similar. I think we'd like to do more of like a Gulf Coast data collection effort, but we we honestly haven't gotten there yet. I will say though that this report was inspired by a report that came out of Washington, D.C. It was called the Startup Census. Mm. So I think if you Google Washington, D.C. Startup Census, probably find it. Or if anyone's interested, I think I have a copy of their report too. So Washington, D.C. is doing this. I'm sure that the Silicon Valley area is doing something like this, but we felt like we're on such a different scale than them that we needed to kind of do, needed to learn from (laughs) uh, folks who are a little bit closer in size to us. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'm personally curious, is there any activity or anything coming out of the LePage Center or the A.B. Freeman School of Business that any of us could get involved in, just as people who are trying to be local? more involved? Yeah, so a couple things. You know, we do have these webinars periodically that we'd love for you to join. But probably the biggest thing is we have a mentor matching program that is open to anyone in the community. You don't have to be a Tulane student or an alum or anything like that. You can apply to be matched with a Tulane mentor. These mentors are typically like they're going to talk to you about starting a business. So Less so for like career advice and more, although you could use them for that, but more so if you're interested, I know a lot of VFA folks are, if you're interested in starting your own business someday and you want to bounce some ideas off of someone, that's what these folks are really great for. And in addition to that, we're also always looking for community members who want to mentor our students Mm. on the flip side of that. So you or any of your colleagues, if you're interested in filling that role, that can be interesting. It's obviously beneficial for the student, but it can be interesting to 
to as a way to meet potential new hires or kind of get to know the talent pool a little bit? Absolutely. I am all good for questions. I just put out a last call for Q&A for anybody else um, who is participating. While we're waiting for that last call to come in, I think now is a great opportunity for us to wrap up. And this has been a really, really awesome and wonderful conversation. I'm so grateful and appreciative that you are my first honored and esteemed guest for taking back the block. You know, as a Black and Puerto Rican aspiring entrepreneur in a completely new city, it's very near and dear for me to understand what inequities kind of already exist prior to me coming here and what inequities I may continue to endure while I'll continue navigating this environment. I think that it's definitely been a really huge benefit to me personally to walk through this report a little bit, kind of investigate some of these findings and understand what contributions I and other young entrepreneurs and aspiring entrepreneurs can do to uplift this city and and give to it. It is truly my prerogative while I'm going to be here to make my impact and, and make some sort of stand for what's right. And more importantly, what can make this city greater than how it already is. So thank you for bringing me closer to that mission that I have for myself. We really, really appreciate the time that you've given us here. Thank you so much to all of the participants and all of the attendees of this webinar. Thank you so much to Andrew Albert, the uh, VFA New Orleans Community Director for all of his hard work. And um, just for everybody who's listening, this really, really means a lot. And I'm sure that we'll continue to have more enriching conversations about what we can do for each of our respective communities. Thanks so much, Anne. If you have, do, do you have anything left to sign off on? Any, any final words, any final thoughts that we can walk away with? Just thank you all so much for being here and for your interest in the report and in the city. We're lucky to have young, talented people like yourselves working here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much again. And Marshall Tilton, everybody. Thank you all for attending. And I'll see you next month on Taking Back the Block, Conversations on Rebuilding. Thanks again, everybody.